welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I can have what it says I can have. I am about to be taught, taught from the everlasting, uncompromised Word of God. And I will never be the same again. Y'all agree with me on that? Amen. Praise the Lord for the Word of God. And praise the Lord for living in a country where we can freely teach and uh, sit under and discuss the Word of God without having to worry about somebody breaking the doors down and coming after us. We still have that freedom. Thank you, Lord, for our freedom. So tonight, as I said, uh, Pastor's gone, so he asked me to, and he sent me his notes, so I'm just going directly off of his notes. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about, uh, as Paul goes to Corinth, remember we talked about... uh, Last week about Mars Hill, we'll get into that. And then next week, Paul goes to Ephesus. That's the kind of the continuation of the journey. And following that, the week of 524, uh, uh, that's the uh, when Paul is arrested, goes before Felix, Caesar, and Agrippa. That's, that's, a, that's a good one. So you don't want to miss any of these that's going forward. So let's just jump right in. This is, there's quite a bit here to cover tonight. I just want to jump in, and we'll... we'll uh, We'll, uh, my commentary might not be as colorful as pastors, but we'll do the best we can if we do any commentary. But there's, there's a lot to cover it tonight, so we'll, we'll start right here. So Paul, Paul preached the famous message on Mars Hill in Athens and traveled a short distance to Corinth, where Luke writes, he settled there for a year and six months. Rejoined by Silas and Timothy and, of course, Luke, Paul enjoyed a fruitful stay in Corinth, meeting Priscilla and Aquila, who would become close allies in his work, in the work, along with Crispus, a brilliant young synagogue leader who surrendered his heart to the Messiah. The, Lord, the, the work was challenging, never a dull moment in Corinth, but rewarding as Paul introduced the one and only God who is holy to the fast lane crowd of that carnal city. So let's check it out. So we'll start reading in, verse, in, in Acts 18, verse 1. We'll go through 18 in this passage. Verse 1 says, After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Very significant statement right there. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to to the house of a man named... uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, heard, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. 
But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and a half, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to him, to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be responsible for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they took all, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he, for he was keeping a vow. Now, as you all know, Corinth was an exceeding, exceedingly wicked city. In the center of it was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite from which 1,000 prostitutes would emerge each evening to offer themselves to men as an act of worship to the god of sensuality. So sinful was Corinth, calling someone a Corinthian was uh, synonymous with calling him a party animal. So it's not surprising that Paul wrote the first chapter of the book of Romans, the passage that traces the surrender of man while in Corinth. Verse 2, we'll, we'll recap through these as we're going through here, but verse 2 says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, <clears throat> having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor then, was commanded, had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. So after Emperor Claudius, who was an anti-Semite, drove the Jews from Rome, Aquila and Priscilla fled to Corinth, where they would eventually come into contact with Paul. Verse 3 says, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Like all Jewish rabbis, Paul had a trade. To this day, the rabbis teach that every man, whether you're a rabbi, teacher, or business executive, had a trade to fall back on should something unforeseen happen in their professions. Paul was a tent maker, but as he sowed tents, he was primarily sowing seeds as he shared the truth of the gospel with Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, kind of like preaching, like a preaching horseshoer. Does anybody know who that might be? <laughs> preaching horseshoer, yes. How many of you know you can, you can preach in your job wherever you're at, right? And, uh, and that's where we should be. Uh, and he was reasoning in the synagogue. I, I imagine, how, can you imagine talking about the preacher and horseshoer? Um, how many horses have got saved since he's been? Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, they hear the gospel every day, you know, so they do. So, and he was in verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. What? No way. He's in a synagogue? Get out of here. You know, the reason he said that is because you'd think Paul would learn his lesson as going through these synagogues. Every time he went to a different city, he'd go to a synagogue, and before you know it, the Jews were against him and beating him and stoning him or something like that. You'd think he'd get tired of that, but no, he was very brave. He'd go right to the synagogue. I'd, I'd say he, he was a, a brave man. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word 
solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It interests me that although Paul went into the synagogue and shared prophecy and theology, he never specifically said Jesus was the Christ until Timothy and Silas arrived on the scene. Why did he wait to make this declaration? Maybe for two reasons. First, he was bold by the presence of his friends. Don't you find yourselves becoming a whole lot bolder when standing by a fellow believer? Absolutely. That's why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. You see that in Luke 10.10. Go back and read that. It's wonderful to minister with another brother or sister. Second, he was told by the he was bold by the pressure of his in his heart. He knew that he he had held back long enough, and he had to share Jesus, or like a volcano erupt, kind of like shaking a coke can. You shake it too long, when you do finally, it's going to erupt eventually if you keep shaking it. Verse six says, "But when they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean." For now, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. When the Jews heard Paul say Jesus was the Christ, they were blasphemously angry because they were looking for a politely, a politically uh, powerful personality who would, be fr- who would free them from the oppression of Rome, not someone who talked about being poor in spirit, turning the other cheek and setting one's heart on things above. That's the reason they, were, they resisted him. They, they never believed in him because they were looking for a warrior king to come and lead them like that and that's not exactly what they found when they looked at Jesus in the continuation of that verse he took he shook out his garments and said to them your blood be on your own heads the Lord said so here's a passage here listen to this the Lord said to Ezekiel if you don't tell people the truth their blood will be upon your hands this is a very sobering verse so listen to this very intently Ezekiel 3 uh, verse 17 through 21 Uh, God speaking to Ezekiel, he said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall... He shall, uh, I'm, I lost my place here. Okay, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from, the righteousness and, from, from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his, in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took the warning, also you will have delivered your soul. Isn't that pretty sobering when you think about that, how many missed opportunities maybe you've had or you didn't take when you should have? I'm convicted. I don't know about you. <clears throat> Same way, if we are not faithful to communicate to the people to whom the Lord has called us to share, their blood will be on our hands. There's a difference between uh, between uh, blood on the hands and blood on the head. In Joshua chapter 2, prior to the fall of Jericho, the spies told Rahab that whoever remained in her house would be spared when destruction came upon the city. Remember, Rahab uh, asked that. That was her request after she had hidden them, and she asked that uh, they spare, be spared when, the, when they come upon them, and that's what that, this was the instructions that they give to them. So blood would be upon the head of anyone who ventured outside her house, Blood on the head means I've brought judgment on myself. 
blood on the hands mean I have failed to reach out to others. Therefore, because faith, because Paul was faithful in sharing the gospel with the Jews at Corinth, their blood would not be upon his hands, but upon their own heads, if upon their hands, but upon their own heads, if they rejected his message. Wow, it's pretty pretty strong stuff right there. From now on, this is a statement he said, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Paul said that. This statement should have pierced the heart of the Jews. What? You, Paul, a Jewish rabbi, are going to the Gentiles? Paul would later write that this was all part of God's plan to provoke the Jews to jealousy. In Romans 11, 11, we can find that. It says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And I encourage you to go back and read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 if you want to see does God still have a plan for the Jews. And, of course, this is part of it in verse 11, I mean chapter 11, verse 11. But I'd encourage you to do that. But he, he said because of their, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad salvation has come to the Gentiles? I am. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. <clears throat> I'm going to the Gentiles, said Paul. Where did he go? Next door. Talking, talk about provoking the Jews to jealousy with Paul right next door. These Jews could, couldn't help but see miracles happening, joy abounding, the church growing. Verse 8 says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So things were happening. People were believing. People were being baptized. What was happening next door to the synagogue was so irresistible and undeniable that even the ruler of the synagogue believed. That's amazing right there. And the, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. If the Lord came to Paul at night saying, Don't be afraid, the implication is that Paul must have indeed been afraid. As he saw a revival happening, he must have been reminded of the stoning he endured in Antioch and of the beating he received at Philippi. Paul was beginning to realize that wherever he saw eternal, external gain, it was followed by personal pain. So as he rejoiced in his heart over what was happening in Corinth, no doubt he was concerned in his mind about what was to come. So the Lord appeared to Paul and gave him the same two gifts he gives to us in the dark seasons of our lives, his promise and his presence. Can you say a hallelujah to that? All of us have been in those points, you know, where we, where we think, you know, when we compare our lives to what Paul's gone through, it's nothing. When you think about how many times have you been up against and, and threatened with a stoning, probably not too many times, not in this country. But, you know, sometimes we, well, it's pretty tough to share with your family or pretty tough to share with your, your um, uh, coworkers or something like that. Just think about Paul, what he did and what he was looking forward to and what uh, possibly could have happened to him. He could have been stoned again, and, and he was many times beaten um, with uh, 40 stripes many times. He was just, there's a list of things. But verse 10 says, For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have man many people, for I have many people in this city. Paul said to the Lord, I'm giving you this promise. I am with you, and no man will, t will attack you and harm you. Same as for us. The Lord has given us over 3,000 promises uh, uh, to you and to me in his word. He has already given them. All the re that remains to be done is for us to believe them. Just like the story, we have a choice to make. 
to freak out in the night or, like Paul, to continue in the city. You see, contrary to Paul's typical pattern of making short stops in the cities to which he ministered, Paul stayed in Corinth a year and a half. Why? Maybe he was established because of the Lord's promise. Church, we don't need to be, in, be on an emotional roller coaster rejoicing one moment and fearful the next. Like Paul, we can say, the Lord gave a promise to me, so I will continue on steadfastly. In Isaiah 7, we see another man who was, had received a promise from the Lord. Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, formed an alliance and planned an attack against Judah, the two southern tribes. The Lord told Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, king of Judah. He was fearful and upset about the upcoming battle. Your response to the promise of God will have no effect on the outcome of the battle, Isaiah told Ahaz, for God has already determined that Israel and Syria will be unsuccessful. However, your response to God's promise will have great effect upon you, for if you don't, if you don't believe God, you won't be established. You'll be unstable. You'll be emotional. You'll cave in unnecessarily. The same is true with us. In John 14, the Lord says to you and me, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I, could have, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and, I, and if I go and pl- prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where, where I am, there ye may be also. See, like Paul, we can establish, we can be established and strengthened in such promises. Or like Ahaz, we can fear endlessly, uh, whether we ch- choose cl- or to claim them or ignore them. God will keep his word. He will prepare a place for us as believers and return to us whether we consciously and consistently sign up for this or not. But we don't. But we, if we don't take him at his word, we will live a life of instability, inconsistency, and anxiety totally needlessly. Kind of reminds like Pastor has brought up a couple of times since the men's retreat, one of the things that Shep said down there is there's no winners or losers, there's only choosers. You choose whether you want to believe God and walk with him through the storm, just like he pastor priest on Sunday, you choose whether you're going to walk with him through the storm or you're going to run from the storm. And so that's what you are. You become a chooser. And that determines whether you're a winner or a loser. <clears throat> but, what I'm, but what if I'm misunderstanding the promises? Some of us have, I know all of us have said that. What if I'm misreading the Bible? What if I'm misinterpreting the context? Have you ever come across a promise and think, I believe it's for me, but what if it's not? Consider Isaiah's words day has. Therefore, the Lord himself should give you a sign. Here's your sign, like pastor's been preaching. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and hear a son, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. The word you in the verse is plural, which means the sign was not only for Ahaz, but for everyone else. So we're all familiar with that. You know, we've seen that during Christmas. We always talk about that, uh, you, you know, the behold a virgin shall conceive. And we talked about when we, in our Bible study, about the things that we believe. We believe in a virgin birth. And that's what goes along with this. The word you in this verse is plural, which means the sign was not only for Ahaz, but for everyone. Ahaz, the Lord declared, a sign will be given to you and not to you only, but to all people. A virgin shall conceive and a son shall be born whose name will be Emmanuel for God with us. God still says to Ahaz, and you, and me, I am Emmanuel. I am the ultimate source of stability. Okay, I might question if I understand the scriptures properly. I might wonder if what I'm reading is applicable to me and uh, 
to me personally. I might doubt whether I interpret the theology correctly. But the Lord says to me, even if you're not sure if the promises apply to you, I, Emmanuel, am with you. Even in 2 Corinthians, when he wrote the, the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul affirms this same thing because he's in his opening remarks, in his opening uh, introduction into the 2 Corinthian letter, he says, and y'all are familiar with this verse, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through, uh, through us. So, see, when we, when we accept those promises, when we walk in those promises, and we... And we uh, uh, enjoy the benefits of those promises. Guess what? We're given the we're given the the glory to God because that's the, the, God receives the glory through us because we're living out the promises that He's told us about over three thousand of them in the in the Bible. For I, so the phrase continues. For I have many people in this city. I'm with you, Paul. Promised the Lord. But where was he when Paul was left for dead at Lystra and thrown in prison at Philippi? As he did with uh, Paul in Corinth, sometimes the Lord keeps us from trouble. Other times, however, the Lord is with us in trouble. I know a lot of us have questioned that before. If, uh, some of when we're walking through this trouble, when we're walking through this valley of the shadow of death, we're wondering, where are you, Lord? <laughs> it's getting a little scary down here, and I need your help. Sometimes we have to walk through the valley. You know, another thing that Shep said in that men's retreat was sometimes you have to out, what was it he said, Don, you, sometimes you have to out, live your giants, right? He said that, yeah. Sometimes you have to outlive your giants. Sometimes you have to out, out, and like Pastor said Sunday, sometimes or every time the storm will eventually run out of water, so out of rain. So I have to share some commentary with you. This is, uh, Pastor said, I have to share some commentary with you. You're going to love it. This is from John Corson. So starting here, it's, it has been rightly said that Europe is looked over by millions of travelers and overlooked by millions of believers. Such was not the case with Paul, who on his third missionary journey went to Europe and as a sightseer, not, not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. Here in chapter 18, however, after meeting opposition in Corinth, Paul was ready to throw in the towel and move out to the, of the region before the Lord spoke to him, saying, Fear not, Paul. Speak boldly. Don't hold back. For in this place of moral decay and depravity, I have many people. It is important to keep in mind that the people of whom the Lord was speaking were not yet Christians. Uh, some of the mind the people of whom the Lord was speaking was not yet Christians. You might see at this point his people were still wandering the streets, frequenting the temples of prostitution. Partying, struggling, and straying, yet in the Lord's perspective, they were his people nonetheless. Therefore, I can't help but wonder what he would say about Grants Pass, Medford, Ashland or Jacksonville, Oregon. Remember, John, this is John Corson writing. He's walking. That's where he's from. Is Oregon, I'm sure. And about the cities in which we live, we could say Amarillo or Lubbock or any of the other cities around here. The schools we attend, the places we work. For although we might be disgusted by them and grieved by what goes on within, within them, surely the Lord would say to you and to me as He did to Paul, "Don't pull away. Don't hold back. I have many people in your city, in your school, in your neighborhood. They're just not saved yet." You ever been that in that position saying, I don't want to even go around that person. They don't look like my kind of people. I don't think I need to be there. Anybody said that besides me? I'm guilty. I am. Forgive me, Lord. I have said that. I have prejudged people for sure. Therefore, I believe the Lord wants us as a Christian community to be city takers for him. How? There's three ways. Just I mean, just thinking and thinking about that, you know, that 
that how awesome that thought is about some of those people that he's talking about are people that are yet to be born again, and those and and gosh, we're we're already judging them ourselves. So the three things he said. This is three ways. The first one is envisioning. Excuse me. Acts eighteen nine tells us that Paul had a vision from the Lord in the night in a time of darkness. So too, when you go downtown to the dark areas of Medford and you cruise by the Sunrise Hotel, what's your attitude toward the men and women that there who will become part of the millions of people this year who will contact contract a sexually transmitted disease? Some of those very people are the Lord's people. They're just not saved yet. What about the high school kids who smoke during lunch hour? How does the uh, Lord view them? I believe he would say to you and to me, don't pull back. Don't pull away. I have many people in that order, orchard. They're mine. Many of them think they're seeking some sort of family and some kind of acceptance, but in reality, they're seeking me. I'm going to work on them and reach out to them, and I want, you, I want to use you in the process of praying for them and sharing the truth with them. What about the guys who sit on the hoods of their cars waiting for a drug deal to take place? We say, let's clean up those areas. Let's call in the law. But the Lord says, I have many people there people who are doing these things because they're craving me. I know them. I want to reach out to them, and I want you in the process. I want to use you in the process. Gang, I'm praying that every time you go into a dark place, into an area that tends to turn you off, that your eyes are open and your heart is deeply touched by the Lord's perspective of the people there, <clears throat> that your eyes are open. You know, what would happen if we looked at people as though we were looking through the eyes of God instead of our own flesh eyes. Would that change the perspective on our part? I think it would, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, kind of like if we were looking to people uh, on that side of the street or on that side of the tracks or however you want to say it. You know, that's what we used to say. But what if you were looking like the, the father to the prodigal son, looking in the distance in the horizon, just waiting for that prodigal son to come? He was always looking for him. What if we looked like that? Looked at people like that with our eyes like that? That would change a lot of things in our perspective. The second part is invading. In Acts five, we read about the apostles that the apostles were accused of filling Jerusalem with their doctrine. And see that in Acts five twenty eight. How did they do it? I believe the answer lies in the fact that one of the Greek words for preaching means conversing. You see, preaching is not limited to speaking behind a pulpit or into a mi microphone. Preaching can also mean conversing, talking with people, and filling the city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. I have found that one of the keys to talking about Jesus is to share with, peop with people as if they were already believers. That's what Jesus did. He treated folks as if they were already part of his kingdom as he spoke to them of heaven. He didn't come, on, he didn't come down on them. He didn't preach at them. He simply shared with them. Be bold, saints, as you invade your home, your school, your neighborhood for the Lord. And listen... Uh, for his voice, as he says to you, fear not, speak out, for I am with you, and I have many people on your street or in your community who are waiting to hear about me. Wow. And number three is enjoying. In Acts 8, we read, we, we read that after Philip shared the gospel with the people of Samaria, there was a great joy in the city, not only, not, for not only did the people of Samaria see miracles, but they heard them as well. So, too, in a world that is drifting aimlessly and confused incredibly, when you and I speak truth clearly, this is the fact about the matter, or here's the big picture, miracles will follow because people will see changed lives and hear a new perspective. That's why we got to keep pounding the truth. The truth 
is never wrong. The truth will never, never, I mean, the truth is never going to be anything but the truth. But there's so much deception out there that people get confused and they think they're hearing the truth. But the truth of the Word of God will never be com compromised. And we need to continue to push that and to preach it and teach it, converse with it, talk about it. Imagine what would happen if five people in your office, in your neighborhood, on your campus got saved next week, next month, or next year. You would see parents start parenting again, husbands and wives working out their difficulties, people who were once disenfranchised and disoriented uh, made whole again. As a result, not only would they be filled with joy, but joy would fill your heart as well. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, proclaimed the angel the night of Jesus' birth, Luke 2.10. And we can bear the same message of joy today to people in our schools, our offices, our communities. How I pray that the Lord will change us to a, great, to a greater degree, that the people we once looked down upon or were disgusted with might become part of a tremendous harvest of souls for his kingdom. I pray that we might envision that we may see people the way the Lord sees them. I pray that we might invade filling our city with his good news. I pray that we might enjoy what the Lord is going to doing as he drives out demons, head, heals souls, and works wonders in our community. Perhaps you're saying, that all sounds great, but how does it happen practically? There's only one way I know in which your perspective on our cities, our communities, our schools, our neighborhoods can be changed. It's found in Mark 8. Listen to this example, and we've and pastor just preached on this here a while back. After he touched the eyes of a blind man, Jesus asked if he could see. I think his message was, do you want to see? I see men as trees, the blind man answered, and Jesus touched his eyes again and made him look up. Now I see all men clearly, declared the once blind man. Maybe like the blind man, you see people at work next door in the questionable areas of town as trees. They stump you. You want to cut them down. You wish they would leave. That's got to be some of pastor, pastor's uh, uh, humor there, <laughs> to use those words. Anyway, maybe you say, the people in my, in my big city bug me. I want to move away from them to a place where I can find peace and quiet, to a place where I won't have to deal with depravity, to a place where I can get away from it all. But I believe, just as he did with the blind man, the Lord desires to make us look up to another tree, the tree of Calvary. You know, that had to be the ugliest tree in the world at that time when Jesus was hung on that tree. We have to look at that tree and we have to look and, and say uh, what happened and see what happened on that tree so we can have the heart the mind of Christ when we look at it. You see, Jesus was pinned to a tree saying, John, I'm in love with the person for whom you have no time and in whom you have no interest, and I care deeply about the person you want to chop down. Gang, Jesus loves the girlfriend who dumped you, the husband who you, deserted you, and the boss who fired you. He cares about the kids on skateboards who cuss and swear and wear blasphemous T-shirts. He died for the prostitutes and for the drug dealers. But we'll never come to that realization until we look up and see Jesus on the tree of Calvary. That's why it says, look, I mean, that scripture says in Hebrews uh, uh, 1 and 2, or uh, chapter 11, 1 and 2, or chapter 12, 1 and 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know, if we just looked at that, took that passage and looked at that, started our day out every day, I'm going to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Wow, we could do some things. So at the cross of Calvary, you'll see people more clearly. Then you will be able to envision what he wants you to do, what he wants to do. Then you will be able to invade the area in which you live as you share the good news of his gospel. Then you will be able to enjoy watching him work in and through you as he takes your city for his glory. That's all by John Corson.
You remember what Jesus said when he was hung on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, and he looked down at the people around him, the people, the soldiers that had nailed him to the cross. What did he say? He said, he said, yeah. He said, Jesus, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Verse 11, and he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. The fact remains that the great need in the church and in our homes today, listen to this, is not in counter sessions or pie-eating contests, but the teaching of the Scriptures. See, it's not, it's not entertainment. It's not how great the music is. It's not how great the preacher is. It's not how great anybody is, any one person or whatever like that. It's the teaching of the Scriptures. That's what, that's what we find. That's where the great need in the church has to be. In verse 12, it says, But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Gallio was the brother of Seneca, a philosopher in Rome, and the tutor of uh, Caesar Nero. When he was appointed governor, the Jews thought, Aha, a change of leadership, here's our chance to get rid of Paul. Saying, in verse 13, it says, Saying, saying this man persuades, these are Jews speaking, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable. For me to put up with you, see, in his own defense, Paul would have said, "I object. I'm not even. I'm not teaching men to worship contrary to the law. I am preaching the fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus Christ." Paul didn't get the chance to defend himself because Gallio spoke and said, "Instead, incredible." You think there was a God intervention right there? I think there was. In verse 15, it says, "But there are questions about words, and but if there are questions about words." And names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge on these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. This is not a question of civil judgment, Gallio said. It's a religious matter for you Jews to figure out among yourselves. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, so they just turned around and beat the guy that was the leader of the group, right? And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not... Uh, concerned about any of these things. Sosthenes was the man who replaced Crispus as chief ruler of the synagogue after Crispus got saved. Whether it was the Jews who took Sosthenes because he didn't argue their case persuasively or whether the Greeks took him because he was bugging them about things that didn't concern them, Sosthenes was beaten. Later later on in verse uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul greets Sosthenes. So great, guess who got converted? In other words, that was part of Paul's greeting, he says, he says, say hello to Sosthenes. So obviously he got converted as a result of that. Like Sosthenes, people are often brought to salvation when they get beat up. If, sometime, if someone you care about is in the process of being beaten, don't try to protect him or, or her because oftentimes it is through the very process that people finally see their need of the Lord. If you are been being beaten up presently, take heart. Blessing will follow if Sosthenes you allow if like Sosthenes you allow the beating to draw you closer to Jesus. Now I want, I want you to write something down talking about suffering, and you know we all know how how Paul um, suffered so many things. But write this verse down so you can read it and read the context of it later. But uh, this, just talking about suffering, this is what Paul wrote in in the Philippians, and I'm sure we'll get to this. 
as pastor is preaching, I mean teaching on Philippians in the in the morning sessions, but uh, Philippians three eight, read, uh, write that down and said, uh, this is what Paul wrote about it. He said, I'll read it to you. It's not going to be on the screen. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, he suffered, lost everything, but he counted it all gain, so because he gained Christ. Right? How many of us have a heart like that? I don't know. Verse eighteen. Paul, having remained many days together, or days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Paul worked for Aquila, and he worked for Aquila and Priscilla when he sewed tents. He worked on Aquila and Priscilla by giving them the gospel. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla as they headed for Ephesus together. Think about how awesome this is. <clears throat> when he left Corinth on his way to Jerusalem, Paul got a haircut. Why? He had taken a Nazarite vow to touch no grapes, drink no wine, touch no dead body, and to allow his hair to grow before cutting it off as a sign of purification. Wait a minute, you say. Why would Paul, the champion of grace, put himself under such bondage? Consider the mentality of Paul. This one who said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means have some, save some, in 1 Corinthians 9.22. So here he is heading towards Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. Paul was willing to go with the flow and to fit in with the Jews, not because he was under the law, but because he was filled with love for his people. Paul is a stud. Now Paul goes back to Antioch. In verses uh, in Acts 18, 19 through 23, we'll finish, read that. And he, and he came to Ephesus, verse 19, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay longer with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went, on, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in, in, in order, strengthening all the disciples. The Ephesians wanted Paul to stick around because he was a treasure chest of truth and a storehouse of spiritual knowledge. How many of you would like to sit in a, in a synagogue meeting with Paul? That would have been great, wouldn't it? I mean, to be able to sit under that, someone who had spent three years in the wilderness with Jesus uh, being taught, I think that would, be a, that would be something. But people always wanted Paul to stay a little longer. People enjoyed his company, not because of an endearing personality or, or friendliness, but because he shared with them concerning the kingdom. And I'm convinced the same is still true, true today. How I love to be around those who are rich in the things of God, taking it, take uh, take in the word, church, uh, give out the word, and you'll find that others will want you, want you to stick around. Come on, somebody is what pastor says. Amen. You know, when I, I looked at that and I read through that the first time and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, uh, you've been around great teachers. You've been around people that have, have, have given, uh, poured into your life the word of God. But I, I think about the first thing that came to my mind was that passage in Luke where the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And Jesus, he had already risen, but he, he walked with them. And after he had he'd sit down with them, Jesus on the, uh, on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, when, this, when their eyes were open, this is what they said. 
did not our hearts burn within us? Is that that's the way we should approach all of our uh, Bible studies and our things like that? When we hear the word and it sinks into us, uh, does not your heart burn within you when you hear something? When you have, see a revelation, a new revelation in your life, that's what I. That's what that's what good Bible study and good Bible teaching, and, and even on your own, when you see that, when you when the word is revealed and when He opens all things to you, your heart's going to burn within you. And when they asked him to stay a while longer with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. With a directive in his heart and a determination on his face, Paul was headed for Jerusalem. I will return if God wills, said Paul. James also said this when he wrote in James 4, 4 13 through 15. He says, come on, come now. You who say today or tomorrow tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. But what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears to be a little time, appears for a little time, and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, "If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that." There is only one who didn't have to say, "If God will," and that one is our hero, Jesus Christ. He said, "I will come again." He said this in, in John 14, 3, one of our, my favorite passages. It says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, he starts out with, in, in verse 1, he says, let not your heart be troubled. But he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 22 says, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went to Antioch. Although he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and although he had taken a vow in order to fit in at Jerusalem, Paul didn't stay in Jerusalem. Paul was not always real popular in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem boys, Peter, James, and John, had a different flavor than the Antioch boys, Paul and Barnabas, Timothy and Silas. James would stress that faith without works is dead. He says that in, in James 2.20. He says, But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? John would say, children, keep yourself from idols. In First John, he says, little children, uh, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Peter would write, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I think we had heard that preached Sunday. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Paul just went on chapter after chapter celebrating the finished work of the cross of Calvary. So as you read the New Testament, you can feel the healthy tension between the brothers in Antioch and the brothers in Jerusalem. I want you to see this not simply as a historical note, but to realize that even today, different people will have different flavors within the body of Christ. There will be Pauls and Barnabases who will comfort you by reminding you that you're perfect in Christ, that the veil is rent, that the work is done. And just when you begin to settle in, maybe a bit too much, a James or a Peter will remind you that faith without works is dead and that you must be sober and vigilant. Like the tension on a trampoline, this balance is healthy and important. For without it, we would hit bottom in one extreme or the other. You know, you know that's very good because, you know, I, 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 we always say and we always claim our church is the best one. I mean, there, and, and I'll... I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that, right? Y'all probably wouldn't be either. But there are other, there are other great churches. Some of them you can't be a part of, but that's just what he was saying. You're going to get something from uh, 
even like when we went to the men's retreat, you know, we had such revelation from Shep Shepherd that night. So it's so good that, that it, it creates that balance where it's healthy and important for us to hear uh, other preaching. As long as, you, as long as the guy does not compromise the Word of God, as long as he's willing to preach uh, the, the uncompromised truth of the Word of God, it's okay to listen to other people. Uh, but stay faithful to your church. Stay faithful and loyal to your church because that's where your greater growth will will come. I believe in this in, in this uh, in the long run. Did y'all get anything out of this tonight? I hope it was okay, um, but it was great. I loved it, um, and so I'm like I said, I'm glad I was be I was able to teach it and uh, and be here with y'all tonight. Thank you so much for coming, and we will close with a word of prayer. Okay, all right. Well, Father, we just come before you. We thank you for the blessings that we have received from the word, Father, and we take this word into our hearts. And we pray that it goes into the good ground of our hearts, that we will take it, we will chew on it, we will meditate on it, and we will use that word to, to grow into the, into the man and women, men and women of God that you have called us to be. So, Father, as we leave this place, as we go out this place, Father, help us to have the eyes of Christ, the mind of Christ. When we see other people that are out there realizing that some of these people already belong to you, and it may be our story, it may be part of our story, part of our journey to introduce them to Christ, or it may be just for our journey to, to be a part of the synergy of the ages that we pray and lift them up and we'll see, them, see that happen sometime in their, in their future life, Father. But we thank you that you've called us to this time that we can be a part of the uh, increase of the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for your word that encourages us, blesses us, strengthens us. It edifies us and helps us to grow and to be more like you in everything that we do. Father, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio, through the website arenaoflifechurch.org, or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.